RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield and I'm a partner at law firm RPC. Now usually on this podcast I have a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. But this August we are doing something different. Instead of our normal fortnightly podcast we are releasing two episodes a week. So eight episodes in total in a series entitled Meditations on Insurance and Society. So, welcome to Meditations on Insurance and Society. In these eight meditations, we examine the role that insurance has played throughout history in shaping society. These meditations will incorporate a bit of philosophy, some psychology, a dash of anthropology, a few film references, a lot of insurance, and who knows what else. Think of it as a podcast blockbuster. This fifth meditation is called Understanding Life Forwards, and in it I discuss how insurance used a combination of data and maths to achieve the impossible, because this is the story of how insurance learned to peer into the future and how, in so doing, it performed the alchemy of turning the uninsurable into the insurable. It involves several mathematical geniuses, a man of pathological prudence and a lot of death, because it turns out that the only way to understand life is to understand death. It is a fascinating story and it starts here. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 1. Risk and Uncertainty The title of this episode, Understanding Life Forwards, is inspired by Soren Kierkegaard's famous quotation, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. According to the gloomy Danish philosopher, it is our lot to stumble blindly through life not knowing what the next day will offer us. Of course, if we look backwards towards our past, then perhaps we will gain some insight into our purpose on planet Earth. But as soon as we face forwards, towards our future, we step once more into the impenetrable fog of our weary existence. Hence, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Well, in this episode, we will examine how insurance tries to prove Kierkegaard wrong because the aim of insurance is indeed to understand life forwards. Because at the heart of insurance is a promise by the insurer to the insured that on the occurrence of some future event, the insurer will provide an indemnity. And for the insurer to fulfil that promise, and to make a profit, it must be able to put an accurate price on that promise. And in order to do that, it must understand life forwards. So how does insurers do that? Well, first and rather obviously, understanding life forwards does not mean knowing life forwards. It is a statement of the bleeding obvious that even the greatest underwriter in the world is unable to predict the exact future, irrespective of what they tell you over a glass of claret. No, 
The process of understanding life forwards starts with an appreciation that future events come in two different forms. First, there are future events that are sufficiently understood as to be calculable. In the world of insurance economics, this is known as risk. Risk is the term that is used when you can calculate the percentage chance of a specific event occurring. That percentage chance may be very low because the event is very rare, but it is nonetheless calculable. For example, for any house in Florida, it is possible to calculate the percentage chance of it being struck by a hurricane within the next 12 months. That is risk. And then there are future events that are completely new or left field or unexpected, events that cannot be calculated in terms of percentages. This is known as uncertainty. For an example of uncertainty, let's go back in time to 11th of March 2020 and to a press conference conducted by Dr. Tedros Adhamon Ghebreyesus, the Director General of the World Health Organization. Good afternoon, he said, while sitting nervously at a large desk flanked by colleagues in front of the world's media. In the past two weeks, the number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold and the number of affected countries has tripled. There are now more than 118,000 cases in 114 countries and 4,291 people have lost their lives. Thousands more are fighting for their lives in hospitals. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterised as a pandemic. At the time, virtually nothing was known about COVID-19 other than that it existed. It was spreading very fast and it was killing people. It was an example of uncertainty. In the same statement, Dr Tedros said, In the days and weeks ahead, we expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths and the number of affected countries climb even higher. But if you had asked him how many cases, how many deaths, how many countries he would not have had a clue, just as he had no clue how COVID-19 was transmitted, what the death rate was, which aid groups were most affected, how it would mutate, or what the long-term effects would be. Uncertainty exists when you are not just stumbling, but stumbling blindfolded through the Kierkegaardian fog of weary existence. But risk is, is very different. If uncertainty is walking blindfolded through the fog, then risk is like walking through the fog with the benefit of sonar, radar and a thermal imaging camera. It doesn't give you a perfect image of what is ahead, but you can at least begin to see a fuzzy outline of what may be there. This distinction between uncertainty and risk was created by Frank Knight in the 1920s, and the distinction is a helpful one. It is one that I'll be relying upon in this episode. But... dot dot dot. Chapter 2. Monsters in the Fog But the distinction between risk and uncertainty comes with a health warning, a serious health warning. Because no matter how good our sonar, our radar and our thermal imaging, we cannot change the fact that we are still walking in impenetrable fog. And as every good horror movie will tell you, the fog always hides monsters. And this is perhaps the core message in the writings of Nassim Nicholas Taleb. In his famous book, The Black Swan, 
He refers to the distinction between risk and uncertainty, but describes it as artificial. In his opinion, it is naive to believe that risks are ever truly measurable in the real world. In other words, his view is that there are always, always monsters in the fog. Metaphorically speaking, you can have the the, the best radar, sonar and thermal imaging in the world, but there will always be monsters that escape detection until they leap on your back and sink their teeth into the fleshy folds of your neck. There is always uncertainty. And most of us intuitively know this. Indeed, that's precisely why we buy insurance to protect us against the unseen monsters in the fog. As I discussed in the last meditation, our fear of these monsters is likely to be exaggerated, but it is nonetheless what makes us purchase insurance. But for insurers, the position is more complex. If they want to make a profit, they must be able to locate as many of these monsters as possible and avoid them, or neutralise them, or simply exclude them from cover. Insurers must understand life forwards. And where better to start our consideration of understanding life forwards than with an analysis of life assurance in the late 1700s and early 1800s, because this was the period in which a handful of geniuses started searching for the monsters in the fog. Chapter 3 The Widows of Scotland In 2008, Niall Ferguson wrote a wonderful history of the financial world called The Ascent of Money. In that book, he tells a story of two ministers in the Church of Scotland in the mid-1700s, Dr Alexander Webster and Dr Robert Wallace, and their colleague, the professor at the University of Edinburgh, Colin McLaurin, whose mathematical skills were, it has been claimed, second only to Sir Isaac Newton. As church ministers themselves, Webster and Wallace were aware of a troubling problem. If the church minister died, his widow and children would receive a stipend for just six months. Thereafter, nothing. The result was often that the widow and children fell into poverty. And this was directly relevant to Webster because he was married. And as an aside, how he came to be married is a great story. Not relevant, but great, so I'm going to tell it. A friend of Webster's was smitten with a young woman, Miss Mary Erskine, who was described as a young lady of good family and considerable fortune. However, this friend was rather bashful, so he asked Webster to speak to Miss Erskine on his behalf, in the style of Cyrano de Bergerac. On his friend's behalf, therefore, Webster made a proposal of marriage to Miss Erskine. Her response was, You would come better speed, Sandy, if you spoke for yourself. They married and lived happily ever after. And we have no idea what happened to the bashful friend. Anyway, the problem of poverty-stricken widows was already recognised by the Scottish Church and was the subject of much discussion, but no one had been able to find a solution, which is where Webster and Wallace enter the story. Their solution was that all church ministers, whilst alive of course, should pay a regular sum of money, a premium, into a fund. This fund could then be invested and over time this fund would grow and it could be used to pay a regular income to new widows. As a concept, it was revolutionary and beautifully simple. But 
To turn the beautiful concept into a practical reality required lots of data and some nifty mathematics. Webster, who was a claret-drinking bon viveur with a forceful personality, set about obtaining the data from Scotland's presbyteries. From this, he discovered the number of church ministers, their ages, how many had wives and such like. The quieter pair of Wallace and Maclaurin provided the nifty mathematics. They calculated how many of those ministers would die per year, how many of them would leave a widow, how long the widow would live after the death of the minister, and so on. They crunched the numbers and arrived at a series of premiums that each church minister needed to pay. As an aside, the creation of the fund also required a lot of diplomatic skill because it needed an act of parliament. So Wallace and another minister, Reverend George Wishart, therefore travelled to London, a 14-day journey back then, in order to lobby parliament. As it so happened, this was not great timing for Wallace and Wishart because their visit to London coincided with a period of heightened tension between England and Scotland. Just a year later, Bonnie Prince Charlie led the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, which saw the Scots invade England and reach as far south as Derby. Despite all that, though, Wallace and Wishart were successful, and with the Act of Parliament safely obtained, the world's first modern life assurance fund was opened on 25th of March, 1744. Unsurprisingly, this model was quickly adopted by others. In 1761, in the US, by the Presbyterian Minister's Fund of Philadelphia. In 1762, by Equitable Life in England. And it led to the explosion of life assurance companies in the early 1800s. Now, undeniably, the story of Wallace and Webster is a great story. Two Scottish church ministers helping Scottish widows. So good, in fact, that not only is it in Niall Ferguson's book, but Yuval Noah Harari also uses it in his best-selling book, Sapiens. And both Harari and Ferguson conclude their stories by claiming that the fund set up by Wallace and Webster to help Scottish widows became the insurance company we know today as Scottish Widows. But alas, that is not correct. At least, not according to the Scottish Widows website. According to that, Scottish Widows was founded over 60 years later for a different set of Scottish widows, those who had lost husbands in the Napoleonic Wars of the early 1800s. Although Webster and Wallace's fund didn't become Scottish widows, it did survive for nearly 200 years. Then, in 1930, it was amalgamated with the equivalent fund for the Scottish Free Churches to become the Churches and Universities Open Bracket Scotland Close Brackets Widows and Orphans Fund. As far as I can tell, it was closed in 1994, a year after it celebrated its 250th anniversary. But let's return for a moment to the beginning. In 1748, in the early days of their fund, Webster and Wallace, well, kind of probably Wallace, made a prediction. They predicted that by 1765, the fund would have grown from £18,620 to £58,348. When 1765 arrived, they were just one pound out. Webster and Wallace, well, mostly Wallace, had successfully understood life forwards. They had avoided the monsters in the fog. They had turned uncertainty into risk. Now, the story of how they did that comes in two parts. 
And that is what we must now discuss. Chapter 4. Death and Mortality The first part of the story involves data, because in order to set up their fund, Webster and Wallace, well, mostly Wallace, needed to make predictions about the life expectancy of church ministers and their widows. But to do that, they needed data about life expectancy. Or more accurately, they needed mortality rates, the probability of a person dying at a certain age. Nowadays, mortality rates are set out in mortality tables. The mortality tables for the UK can be found on the website of the Office for National Statistics. Apparently, as a 56-year-old male, I have a 0.5609% chance of dying in the next 12 months, which, to be honest, I'm quite happy with. If I make it to 80, then my percentage chance of dying increases to 5.7764%, which makes a lot of sense. And thankfully for Webster and Wallace, well, mostly Wallace, a mortality table already existed in the 1700s. But before we get to that, we must go one stage further back to the creation of the raw data. In 1603, London started producing regular bills of mortality that recorded the numbers of deaths and christenings in each London parish. In the 1620s, some parishes began additionally to include the cause of death, but frustratingly they did not include the age of the deceased. The data was therefore incomplete, but hey, sometimes you have to work with what you've got. So the next stage of the process was the transformation of that raw data, inadequate though it was, into a mortality table. Enter John Graunt, a man of humble origins and without any prior hint that he had a scientific bent. But, for whatever reason, he had a fascination with London's bills of mortality. Probably best not to inquire too closely about that. Anyway, he collated the raw data, and in the process, he created the first mortality tables. However, because the data was incomplete, because it did not include the age of the deceased at the date of death, he had to make various assumptions which meant that the tables contained an element of subjectivity. Meanwhile, in the Netherlands, Johan de Witt, a man of distinctly not humble origins and who became one of Europe's preeminent statesmen, was undertaking a similar task. However, in his case, he didn't even rely upon raw data. His process was largely theoretical and was therefore even more subjective. But I guess that's what you do when you've grown up with a sense of entitlement. Anyway, let's now roll forward to 1693 and one Edmund Halley. Edmund Halley is probably best known nowadays for the comet that bears his name. He didn't discover it, but he did calculate its orbit, and he predicted in 1705 that it would return in 1758. It was actually a year out because it returned a year later in 1759, but that was apparently regarded as being close enough, which is why it is now called Halley's Comet. If you're interested, the comet will next appear in mid-2061. Halley was, first and foremost, an astronomer. Indeed, in 1720, he became Britain's second astronomer royal. Halley was a truly remarkable individual. When he was aged 20, he spent two years on the island of St Helena in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean, where he built a telescope, 
which he then used to map the stars of the Southern Hemisphere. Aged just 22, he returned to England and became a Fellow of the Royal Society. He helped fund the publication of Isaac Newton's Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, in which Newton laid out his laws of motion. Halley also built a diving bell and spent an hour and a half underwater. He invented the magnetic compass. He translated Arabic and Greek. Oh, and in his spare time, he tried to date Stonehenge. All in all, he was one of those polymath geniuses that were ten a penny in the 1700s and 1800s. But his relevance for our story is that, in addition to all that, he was also interested in mortality. He was, of course, aware of the subjective weaknesses in both Graunt's and De Witt's mortality tables, and he therefore knew that he had to find raw data that included the age of the deceased at the date of death. So Halley went searching for better underlying data, and he found it in the German town of Breslau, which is now the Polish city of Rocklaw. As Craig Turnbull says in his book, A History of British Actuarial Thought, Halley's access to improved data permitted an advancement in methodology that resulted in a mortality table recognisable to modern eyes. Of course, there was also an obvious weakness with Halley's mortality table in that it was based on the evidence of a central European town and there was no reason to believe that it would be accurate for cities, towns and villages in Britain. Nonetheless, for better or for worse, it was Halley's mortality table on which Wallace and Webster, well, mostly Wallace, relied successfully when creating their fund. But in addition to the mortality data and the initial collation of that data into mortality tables, Wallace and Webster, well, mostly Wallace, needed something else. They needed the statistical and mathematical tools to turn the data into something that worked in the real world. Chapter 5. Probability Theory and the Weak Law of Large Numbers For these statistical and mathematical tools, Webster and Wallace, well, mostly Wallace, relied upon the work of a series of mathematical geniuses, Galileo Galilei, Blaise Pascal, Pierre de Fermat, Jacob Bernoulli, Abraham de Moivre, Daniel Bernoulli and Thomas Bayes. Now, maths is famously difficult to explain in words, but let's give it a go. If you roll two dice, it is easy to work out the probability that the two dice add up to 10. Furthermore, if there is a competition between two people to see who rolls the highest number and the first person rolls a 10, it is easy to work out the probability of the second person winning that competition by rolling an 11 or a 12. But let's say that the same two people decide to have multiple competitions. Let's say that they both roll two dice and the winner, the person with the highest score, gets a point. Let's say that the first to five points wins £100,000. Now, let's say that after five games, player A has three points and player B has two points. What is the probability that player B will go on to win the competition? Or, to put a slightly different spin on that, if the two players agree to end their game at that point, with player A on three points and player B on two points, 
How should the £100,000 be split between them? That particular problem was resolved by Blaise Pascal and Pierre de Fermat, and in the process they laid the groundwork for the modern discipline of probability theory. This was useful for Wallace and Webster, well, mostly Wallace, because they could now, in theory, use probability theory to establish, say, the chances of a church minister dying before his wife. But I say, in theory, with good reason. Because probability theory works well with games of chance, such as dice or cards, but it doesn't translate so neatly when applied to humans. Nassim Nicholas Taleb calls this the ludic fallacy, where ludic derives from ludus, the Latin for games. The ludic fallacy is the belief that rules learned in the casino can be applied to real life. As Taleb puts it, in real life you do not know the odds, and the sources of uncertainty are not defined. And that's where the second group of mathematical geniuses comes in. They accepted that you could not know the odds for an individual situation. You could not know the percentage chance of Reverend Hamish MacDougall dying before his beloved wife Flora. But if you looked at a hundred church ministers and a hundred wives, well, they worked out that this would enable you to make a more accurate prediction. Because the more observations you make, the more certainty you can have of the outcome. In the words of Oscar Wilde, To lose one parent, Mr Worthing, may be regarded as misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. OK, that might not be a great example. But to use a different one, if you examine four people and find that three have high blood pressure, that does not mean that 75% of the population has high blood pressure. However, if you examine 100,000 people and find that 28,000 have high blood pressure, you can be pretty confident that about 28% of the population has high blood pressure. Which is about right, apparently, because the correct figures are around 31% for men and 26% for women. The fact that a larger sample size will give you more accurate results is pretty obvious to us now. But the harder questions are, how precisely does the accuracy of the result increase with the sample size? And how large does the sample need to be for you to have confidence in the results? And those were exactly the questions that Jacob Bernoulli answered in around 1692, with a complex mathematical calculation known as the weak law of large numbers, or more simply, the law of large numbers. His work was then built upon by others, such as Daniel Bernoulli, Jacob's nephew, and Abraham de Moivre, who developed normal distribution curves. But I think that's probably enough maths for now. The relevant observation for my wider argument is that data by itself is useless, unless it is collated and then analysed statistically and applied practically. For life assurance, the data was obtained from the German town of Breslau, the collation was done by Edmund Halley. The statistical analysis was enabled by a series of brilliant mathematicians. But it was Wallace and Webster, well, mostly Wallace, who first turned all this into an actual life insurance fund. It was they who were the first to understand life forwards. Chapter 6. 
Priests and Prophets There is a lot more that can be said about the development of statistical thought in the late 1700s and early 1800s, but most of it is way beyond my mathematical ability either to understand or to explain. It is secret knowledge, reduced to formulae with strange symbols that only a few can understand. Z open bracket X close brackets equals H divided by the square root of pi multiplied by E to the power of open brackets minus H squared X squared close brackets. And this secret knowledge is available to just a small group of professionals called actuaries. They are the priests and the prophets of the irreligious faith of insurance. They are priests because they are able to access esoteric information and they are prophets because they have an ability to see into the future. Because that is ultimately the actuary's role, to peer into the impenetrable fog of our future and discern the monsters. And that's not just me being hyperbolic. Even according to the website of the International Actuarial Association, the IAA, the first task of the actuary, the first task, is to evaluate the likelihood of future events. And if they can do that successfully, they are able to perform the alchemy of transforming uncertainty into risk, turning the uninsurable into the insurable. As the IAA explains, actuaries analyse the financial impact of risk, they apply their mathematical expertise to forecast and minimise financial uncertainty. You could say that their role is to understand life forwards. Now, the word actuary derives from the Latin actuarius, meaning clerk, copyist, account keeper or bookkeeper. And it was in that sense that the job title of actuary was first created. The first actuaries were little more than bookkeepers, with no expectation that they would be statisticians. The man who changed that was William Morgan, who was the actuary at Equitable Life for 55 years from 1775 to 1830. Perhaps ironically, Morgan was not himself a statistician. His training had been in medicine. But his uncle was another of these mathematical geniuses, Richard Price, who also happened to be a paid consultant at the newly formed Equitable Life, which was at the time known by the more cumbersome name the Society for Equitable Assurances on Lives and Survivorships. So, after a crash course on statistics from Uncle Richard, Morgan, then aged just 24, joined the Equitable as an assistant actuary in 1774. A year later, he became the chief actuary, following the death of his predecessor, John Pocock. Pocock, as an aside, had only been in the role for a few months when he died unexpectedly, which must be something of a professional embarrassment for an actuary. Anyway, Morgan, in the early years it must be said, with quite a lot of assistance from Uncle Richard, oversaw the expansion of the fund. Whenever the fund was in surplus, when it had more money than it needed to have, a bonus would be paid to policyholders by means of an increased level of life assurance. This reversionary bonus was first paid in 1781 and then again in 1792 and 1800. By then, Equitable Life's assets had grown from £42,000 to over £1 million. It was Morgan who had to manage this growth and it was Morgan who put in place safeguards to ensure that the fund was always protected. Turnbull describes Morgan as having near-pathological prudence. Turnbull also says... 
With William Morgan as the first role model, the actuary had emerged as a person of considerable power in a life assurance company. And 200 years later, the equitable life sorely needed someone like him. In the 1990s, it allowed unhedged liabilities to accumulate. In 2000, it lost a crucial case in the House of Lords, the UK's highest law court, which meant that its long-term liabilities suddenly increased by £1.5 billion. On 8th of December 2000, it was forced to close to new business. Four years later, an inquiry found that the company had made over-generous payouts and that it was, as a result, underfunded. Something that Morgan, with his near-pathological prudence, would never have allowed. Rather appropriately, there is a portrait of William Morgan at the Institute of Actuaries in Staple Inn Hall, and I'm relieved to say that he looks exactly like an actuary should look, bookish, quiet and kind. Although I'm slightly concerned by the greyness of his shovel-like hands. Perhaps he had bad circulation or something. Anyway, well, hang on, but actually, thinking about it, why should I assume that he would be bookish, quiet and kind? It's because, somehow, in some way, the actuarial profession has become synonymous with dullness. It has shrouded itself with tedium. But that's so wrong, because these people are incredible. Throughout history, we have always loved and feared those who claim to be able to see into the future. Soothsayers, witches, prophets, astrologers, oracles. We burn them, stone them and ostracise them. When we create a profession that actually does it, I mean actually sees into the future and does so accurately and provably, we dismiss them as boring. I mean, we truly are a very odd species. Chapter 7. On the life of a Pope In his book, The Ascent of Money, Niall Ferguson contrasts the approach adopted by the actuaries with that of the merchant insurers. He says that the approach of the actuaries was based on correct actuarial and financial principles, whereas the approach of the merchant insurers was, open quotes, mercantile gambling, close quotes. And he subsequently repeats this accusation. Before the dawn of modern probability theory, he says, insurers were the gamblers. Now they are the casino. However, that is a very harsh assessment of the merchant insurers who had, after all, been writing insurance profitably for 400 years before the likes of Wallace, Webster and McLaurin were even born. If that is gambling, then that is one hell of a winning streak. No, the merchant insurers may have been many things, but they were not gamblers. True, they may not have had scientifically verifiable data, but they knew precisely what they were underwriting because they were also the merchants who took the risks. They knew from their own experience and that of their colleagues precisely what the risks were of maritime trade. They knew the dangerous routes, the dangerous ships and the dangerous months in which to set to sea. And more than that, they knew how to spread their risk. So they underwrote small lines on multiple policies to ensure that the loss of a single ship would not bankrupt them. They were not gamblers. They adopted an intuitive approach based on experience and expertise. Perhaps more surprising, 
was the fact that the first fire insurers also adopted this same intuitive approach. I say surprising because fire insurance was a very different beast. As I explained in Meditation 3, fire insurance was based on the beneficial selfishness of strangers. So whereas merchant insurers were emotionally entwined with the businesses that they were insuring, because in reality they were all the same people, that was not true for fire insurers. For fire insurers, there was a detachment between insurer and insured. Fire insurance was a product and insureds were nameless consumers. In the words of Michael Corleone in The Godfather, it's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. The sale of fire insurance was not personal. It was strictly business. And as such, you would have thought they would approach the business of selling insurance systematically, methodically, and empirically. But if you did think that, you would be wrong. Even into the 1800s, fire insurers did not regularly analyse their exposure. As and when they did, these analyses were, in the words of the historian Robin Pearson, belated, incomplete and often confined to market segments regarded as especially hazardous. It was not until the 1830s that this began to change, and as Pearson says, the business of insuring the British economy became somewhat less of a gamble. There's that word again, gamble. And again, it seems inappropriate. Yes, the fire insurers may not have been as efficient as they could have been. And yes, their approach to industrial risks was based on an element of guesswork. But overall, they made profits. And some of the insurance companies founded in this period are still with us today in one form or another. Gambling is going all in on two of a kind. It is not selling fire insurance to wealthy property owners in Georgian London. So, yes, the approach adopted by fire insurers may have been haphazard, particularly so in relation to industrial risks, but it was not gambling. Now, having said that, the, the link between insurance and gambling is not entirely without a foundation because the distinction between the two has been, at times, rather hazy. And this is because there are some natural similarities between gambling and insurance. Both start with an individual paying a small sum of money to a third party. With gambling, a punter pays a bet to a bookmaker. With insurance, an insured pays a premium to an insurer. And both finish with the third party paying a sum of money on the happening of a specified future event. With gambling, a horse wins and the bookmaker pays the punter. With insurance, a horse dies and the insurer pays the insured. But of course, insurance is not gambling. And it comes back to the concept of uncertainty. Because gambling creates new uncertainty, whereas insurance responds to existing uncertainty. A roll of the dice is irrelevant unless there is money on it. Which horse, or greyhound, or snail, wins a particular race is irrelevant unless there is money on it. If you don't bet then you won't lose. It is the act of gambling that creates the uncertainty. Whereas if you crash your car or your house subsides or you break your leg, that is a loss whether or not you have insurance. It is an existing uncertainty and the aim of insurance is to respond to that existing uncertainty. So insurance is not gambling. Except for 
when it is. In the early 1700s, for example, people would buy life insurance policies on the life of, for example, the Pope, hoping that he would die and that they would receive a papal payout. But sadly, in 1746, even that bit of fun came to an end when legislation required insureds to have an insurable interest in the object of the insurance. In other words, the loss had to be a loss that they themselves suffered. Which means, just in case you're interested, that the last pope for which there would have been a papal payout was Clement XII, who died on 6th of February 1740, aged 87. Chapter 8. There be monsters, there be fog. So, have we now solved the problem of understanding life forwards? Has the fog cleared and have the monsters been located? In a straight fight between Kierkegaard and the actuaries, have the actuaries won? Well, yes and no. Let's return to Nassim Nicholas Taleb. In his books, he distinguishes between mediocristan and extremistan. And this is perhaps best explained by way of an example. If you randomly select 10,000 people, you will be able to calculate an average weight per person. Now, let's say that you add the heaviest person on earth to your sample. What will be the consequence of that? Well, the answer is virtually nothing. Because that's the law of large numbers in action. If you create a large enough pool, then no one risk will have much of an influence. That is mediocristan, where there are no, or very few, metaphorical monsters. Now, for the same 10,000 people, calculate their average wealth. And what happens now if you add the richest person on earth? The consequence of that will be enormous, because the wealthiest person on earth is likely to have more wealth than all the other 10,000 combined. That is extremistan, a place of extremes, where the monsters still inhabit the fog. Most of insurance, such as fire insurance, life insurance and marine insurance, inhabits mediocristan. So long as the pool of insureds is large enough, then no one risk is going to cause anything more than a ripple. These are well-behaved risks, high frequency and low severity. And as Taleb says, predictive modelling works beautifully for mediocristan. Actuaries love mediocristan. But extremistan is very different. This is the world of badly behaved risks. Low frequency, but high severity. This is the world of systemic risks, such as pandemics, cyber terrorism, war, banking collapses, environmental disasters and, well, and whatever other monsters, currently unknown, are out there walking in the fog. These are risks that affect whole portfolios and multiple business lines. COVID-19 was an extremist darn event. The 2008 banking crisis was an extremist darn event. Insurers protect themselves against these risks, or miraculously we should say these uncertainties, in numerous ways, by diversifying their portfolios, by using exclusions, by capping liability, by purchasing reinsurance, and by making pricing adjustments. As a result, insurance has proved to be remarkably resilient 
in the face of even the largest monsters. COVID-19 generated enormous losses, but no insurer became insolvent because of it. Indeed, in the last 100 years, there has never been an industry-wide failure on the scale of the banking failures in 2008, or even the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse early this year. Sure, Lloyds of London nearly collapsed in the 1980s, but it didn't. As Taleb was reported to have said in 2015, this is a beautiful industry. I marvel at the sophistication of insurance. And when he talks about sophistication, I think that he in part means vigilance. Insurance remains vigilant because it knows that we all walk in impenetrable fog. And whilst we find ever better ways of searching for monsters, we know that we will never find them all. Thank you for listening to this fifth meditation. In the next meditation, entitled Everyone Everywhere All at Once, we will examine the exponential growth of insurance from 1850 to the present day. It is a story that includes colonialism, nationalisation, geopolitics, demographics and technological change. And through it all, we will endeavour to answer the question, how was it that insurance developed from being a niche product in the Victorian era to the ubiquitous one we have today? Here's an extract to whet your appetite. Insurance now comes in a multitude, perhaps even a plenitude, of shapes and forms. In the book of Revelation, in the Christian Bible, the apocalypse is heralded by four horsemen, traditionally named as pestilence, war, famine and death. Well, in 2023, you can buy insurance against all four. Health insurance against pestilence, war insurance against war, agricultural insurance against famine and life insurance against death. Perhaps an enterprising insurer should combine these and market it as Armageddon insurance. Even the four horses can be insured. Everyone can be insured anywhere in the world doing anything. In 2023, it is difficult to think of any human activity that is beyond the reach of insurance. The breadth and variety of insurance policies is breathtaking. I hope you'll join us on Thursday for the next Meditation on Insurance and Society. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.